Hey there, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kai Rizdal. It's Tuesday, which usually means a deep dive into a single topic with a single expert, and we all get made smart about something that is super relevant in that moment or just kind of a cool thing to know about. We bounce back and forth, but uh, something a little bit different today because, you know, scheduling. So we couldn't actually be here here to do the thing that we usually do on Tuesdays, but we still want to do what we usually do on Tuesdays, which is make you smart, even with a little break in format. Right. So regular listeners of the show might remember the deep dive we did a while back on credit scores and how using algorithms to determine someone's credit worthiness was originally meant to remove like chances of bias and discrimination from that decision because you should just have to walk into a bank and stare at somebody. But using these algorithms and this big data method doesn't always work quite that way. So I was not quite done thinking about that after our deep dive. And so the folks over at the Marketplace Tech team, we all did a whole series about credit scores and the algorithms behind them and how those credit scores shape our financial reality today. And the first thing you need to know is that the algorithm that's being used to build your credit score is itself built to make assumptions about broader financial trends and your place in them. Many times credit scores are built on a history of all kinds of other aggregate data. So people who look like you. Safia Noble is a professor of gender studies and African-American studies at UCLA. She writes about how algorithms can perpetuate racism and gender bias. And this is where we start to get in trouble, because if you are part of a group uh, that has traditionally been denied credit or been offered predatory products, then your profile may, in fact, look more like those people and you will be dinged. You might not have access to loans or a mortgage, better rates on insurance. This is part of a bigger problem. So credit scores very much are reflecting of the history of discrimination in the country. David Silberman is a senior fellow at the Center for Responsible Lending and before that spent a decade at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, plus years in the financial services industry. So he's spent some time thinking about how algorithms can reflect privilege or lack thereof. If one starts out without any wealth, with limited income prospects, the kinds of credit you can get is going to be affected. For instance, payday lenders concentrate in African-American and Latino neighborhoods and tend to offer loans with less favorable terms. So borrowers who use those lenders could be more likely to default. Your ability to repay that credit is going to be affected, and that's then going to itself find its way into credit scores. According to payments processor Shift, white Americans have an average FICO score of 734 a pretty good score for most financial products. But for Black Americans, it's 677. A lower score can equal higher interest rates or being denied a loan. Since accurate historical data can still create biased algorithms, lots of researchers and businesses are looking for new options to determine creditworthiness. But that can be risky, too. Bias can creep in absolutely anywhere. Most people talk about bias in the data, and that's somewhat of an obvious thing. 
Nicholas Schmidt is CEO of Solace AI, which vets algorithms for disparate impact. He walked me through one example of how bias can creep into a seemingly neutral data set. Take an algorithm to assess credit risk. When it came to people who didn't pay credit card debt... The best predictor was how often you shopped at a convenience store. At gas stations, strip malls, even freestanding stores like Patron Convenience Store in Southeast D.C., where it's busy on a Wednesday morning with people buying lottery tickets and snacks. And I thought about it. What do you get at a convenience store? Cheap beer, cigarettes, bad candy, and lottery tickets. Those are all probably pretty well correlated with risky behavior, which is probably well correlated with bad credit card outcomes. Seemed reasonable. But then Schmidt and his team thought about it some more and realized there was a gaping hole in that analysis. Food deserts. According to the USDA, food deserts are areas where people are low income and don't have easy access to a supermarket or large grocery store. In 2021, about 13.5 million people lived in food deserts, and guess where many of them shop? So here I have pizza and uh, frozen chicken, and I have here frozen vegetables and frozen uh, fruits. Ekram Aman is a cashier at the Penway Market, a convenience store in a strip mall also in southeast Washington, D.C., which doesn't sell beer or lotto tickets, but is in a food desert. Most of the people who come here, they, uh, they use their EBT to buy some groceries. That's electronics benefits transfer used for several food assistance programs. They say because it's convenient for them and for people especially who don't drive, it's very convenient. Aman says most of her customers come from the neighborhood and walk to Penway Market, sometimes sending their kids to pick up food for dinner or some of the household goods packed into the shelves of the narrow store. Nicholas Schmidt from Salas AI says when an algorithm lumps all these people together, What you're going to do is you're going to capture the risky behavior of whites in the suburbs who are going to convenience stores and buying lottery tickets and and bad candy and bad beer. But you're also going to capture creditworthy people in cities, low income and people of color, sure, but also wealthier people in dense cities shopping at bodegas. And so that's an example of discrimination creeping in through what at first looked to me like a reasonable factor. Schmidt doesn't know if that particular variable ended up in the lender's final model. Financial services firms often adjust their models to account for built-in biases. But, says David Silberman at the Center for Responsible Lending, there's only so much these algorithms can do. There may be tweaks that will, on the margins, bring more people into the system or give a, a fuller picture of their creditworthiness by looking at a richer set of data. But I think that's that's marginal. It's not going to deal with the fundamental problems of inequality that we have to deal with. Okay, so we're going to come back to those algorithms and what they got wrong in a minute. But first, what happens when you need to boost your credit quickly? Is it possible to game the system? Well, Amber Miller is a certified financial planner in Minneapolis, and she already had a really high credit score. But she wanted to see if she could make it a little bit higher, and she kind of thought of it as an exciting challenge. 
I caught up with Miller and her husband during their beach vacation with their 11-month-old baby. She keeps tabs on her credit scores, mainly just out of curiosity. At this point, it's, oh my gosh, if it's under 800, if then I'm like, what is going on, right? Because now I feel like I've tried to figure out the system, worked the system to get it to be perfect. And she has tried to work the system. Miller had a general idea of what yields a good credit score, and yet she and her husband noticed their scores kept dropping, like by 10 or 20 points at a time. But she thought they were doing everything right, never used all their available credit. We always paid our credit cards off in full every single month by the due date or before, and I didn't understand why then the score would ever go down. So Miller tried an experiment. She changed how often she paid her credit card bills, from once a month to twice a month, and then... So the most frequently I ever paid off the credit cards was weekly. It did absolutely jump our credit. I mean, like every week it would go up 10 points for each of us. Miller guessed that was because the credit bureaus check her accounts several times a month. Still, this is all guesswork. Credit scoring companies give broad outlines to their calculations, a certain percentage attributed to credit history, a chunk to the types of credit you have, or how long you've had credit. David Silberman is a senior fellow at the Center for Responsible Lending. But precisely what credit history means and how it's scored or what types of credit means and how it's scored, that's all black box. Nevertheless, there's a whole industry promising easy fixes to improve credit scores, from credit reporting bureaus Boost your credit scores today. to an endless supply of YouTube videos offering tips. This is about your credit and some easy ways to instantly boost up your score. I'm going to show you five ways to blow up your credit score in the next 30 days. But credit scoring companies they know all the tricks and regularly update their models. Ethan Dornhelm is a vice president in FICO scores and predictive analytics department. A practice that became pretty popular a little over a decade ago was this notion of authorized user piggybacking, where people would basically rent out their sparkling credit card account. And for a fee, they would add people as an authorized user on their account thus boosting that second person's credit score. So FICO ran the numbers. And what we ultimately concluded was actually that authorized user information wasn't as directly related to whether someone was going to pay future bills as agreed. So in one of the company's newer versions, FICO tweaked that algorithm. But not all changes are so obvious. Credit scoring companies like to keep the finer details of their algorithms close to the chest, you know, for competitive advantage. But that leaves a lot of people guessing or listening to people giving bad credit score advice, says the Center for Responsible Lending's David Silberman. I think some folks who try may actually misunderstand what counts as good and what counts as bad. They may actually do things which have the exact opposite effect from what they're intending. And the consequences of getting it wrong can be severe. Safia Noble, a professor at UCLA, has written extensively about the role of algorithms in our lives. She gives the example of someone who has a bad credit score and no dental insurance. Let's say you need an emergency root canal. If you don't have dental care, and you have to finance that, right, a visit to the dentist on some type of dental credit card or credit system. Many dentists and other specialists will offer monthly payment plans or loans to cover services. 
So now you're in pain and about to be in debt. But if you have bad credit, in our healthcare system, you might just go without treatment. Having good credit or not good credit should not determine like your health and your well-being and your ability to see a dentist and other kinds of specialists. One of many reasons some consumers pay for monthly subscriptions to stay on top of their credit scores or try to improve them. What else? Amber Miller uses the free version of Credit Karma to track her scores, which she says started dropping again when she backed off her experimental weekly payments. I guess in some way I was trying to game the system, but I was just trying to see what would work. And now that she knows, or at least thinks she knows, she's a little frustrated because without her experiment of paying off her cards weekly, she would have been stuck with a lower score. It feels unfair, you know, if it's a computer algorithm. It doesn't have this overlay of a human saying, this is the same end, right? Like you pay it off in full monthly versus four times a month because there's four weeks. At the same time, she says she's fortunate. Right now, she's not trying to buy a car or house or get a loan or anything. Day in and day out, I'm not sure that the score itself matters other than maybe my ego. (laughs) Um, But that when I want to use it, I want to make sure that number's high. And knowing a bit more about how the algorithm behind the number works is another tool to play the game and try to get the top score. And we'll be back with more after this. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so now you know how the algorithms we're using to build our credit scores work, but maybe there's a different way. There are some people who don't think we should be using credit scores to figure out who qualifies for a loan. And then there are others who think that more data should be added into the mix when we calculate the scores that we do have. Here's Marketplace's Sasha Fernandez with more on that. Monique Drayton in Washington, D.C., was living for years with bad credit. When she lost her full-time job, she says it felt like everything fell apart. Not having a good credit score is like being empty inside. I didn't feel valued. But Drayton had a plan. She moved into public housing with her two children in 2016. So allow me to save money and pay off debt. For Americans like Drayton, who resort to paying with credit cards after a job loss, it can be hard to wipe debt history from your score, even when your financial picture improves. The credit score relies on things like credit card applications, the total amount of debt you owe, so the score is a limited view of your finances. One thought from academics is to just add more data to your score. What I would like to see is that we do explore alternatives. 
Lindsay St. Jones is an assistant professor of legal studies at University of Georgia's Terry College of Business. She says a more inclusive credit score could weigh payments more logically associated with a borrower's credit risk. Things like utility payments, checking and savings account balances, account history, rental payment histories. In the U.S., 44 million households rent their homes. And if they do reliably pay rent, they don't always get the benefit of having that reflected in their credit scores. In 2020, Monique Drayton joined a D.C. Housing Authority program that aims to change that. That program lifted me up and put my mindset back on the journey of my home ownership. When she paid rent on time, that improved her score with the three main credit bureaus, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. Drayton eventually boosted her score into the 700s using those rent payments and disputing errors on her report. And in May 2021, Drayton moved into her new home, one that she bought. She says she's living her best life. I'm living my dream. I'm living my dream now. This practice of rent reporting is spreading. But the inclusion of alternative data is still unusual in credit scores. And it's not a solution to the discrimination within the credit scoring system, says Pamela Foey, law professor at Yeshiva University's Cardozo School of Law. You know, alternative credit scores are elevated as a way to, to solve this problem. She says framing more data as a solution misses a bigger point. It detracts from thinking about larger disparities, both historical and ongoing, that are feeding into the traditional credit scoring system. It's kind of like putting a Band-Aid over something that is a huge gaping wound. Bowie says we need new economic policies, like guaranteeing certain loans or utility bills, to give marginalized communities who don't have generational wealth a leg up. Put them on a path of credit success. And then the the credit scores themselves will be more reflective of people's relative ability to pay going forward. Attorney Chi-Chi Wu at the National Consumer Law Center believes there's some promise to including alternative data in credit scores, but with safeguards. Rent reporting and utility reporting have to be done in a way that it only reports the positive information and that it's done only with the tenant or the consumer's voluntary opt-in and knowing consent. The idea is, because some payments are optionally reported, they should only help, not hurt, someone's credit score. Wu says it's important that adding more financial data shouldn't put consumer privacy at risk. Because as we know, more data means more power. That was Marketplace Tech's Sasha Fernandez. The credit score you're probably most familiar with is the FICO score. But a competitor to FICO is called Vantage Score. It was founded by the three credit bureaus and is now independently managed. And it says that its scoring model is more inclusive and better at predicting credit risk than some of these other traditional models. I spoke to Vantage Score's president and CEO, Silvio Tavares, about how they do that. The reality is establishing someone's creditworthiness through a three-digit score requires an enormous amount of judgment. And it's really important, the decisions around which data is factored in and how. And let me give you an example of that. Vantage Score was one of the first companies to come up with the idea of eliminating paid medical debt. 
two-thirds of the collections accounts were related to medical debt. And when we looked at the data, what we found was that if you had actually paid off your medical debt, just the fact that you had a medical debt collection didn't really indicate anything about credit worthiness. We also determined that a lot of those paid medical debts disproportionately hit, hit people of color. So those are the key types of decisions that modelers we have to take into account. It's about getting the best objective data and looking empirically to see what types of data sets are best at empirically predicting whether someone is credit worthy or not. So what are you doing at Vantage Score to make sure that all of the data feeding into your algorithm and your model comes from consumers that have, in a knowledgeable way, agreed that you can have this information? Well, yeah. So we work with banks and lenders and fintech lenders to make sure that they are collecting um, data in a way that is um, uh, transparent and where the consumer has provided their consent. But really, most of that is going to be done by the bank. It's not going to be done by, by Vantage Score. We focus on the algorithm and making sure that it's fair, it's equitable, and most of all, that it's predictive and a really good predictor of whether the consumer is going to repay. How can consumers be informed with what that consent actually means? We're specifically not looking at, okay, what kind of stores did you shop at? Um, mm -hmm. You know, did you buy big wheels for your car at an unreputable dealer? We're specifically not looking at that. We're looking at general measures of your overall financial uh, health and cash flow. But it's also fair to say the reality is that the market is evolving very rapidly. The history of credit models is that they're not based on this bank account type data, but probably over the next 10 to 15 years, bank account data is going to be one of the primary sources for, for credit scoring just because it's timely, it's often more uh, accurate, and it gives a much better picture of the consumer's actual behavior. Many of the consumers who will benefit the most are the new type of consumers, the consumers that have been historically underserved, who are going to be able to access better credit terms, access more credit products uh, because of uh, these new algorithms that we are developing. What role does machine learning play in all of this? Yeah, you know, machine learning is a is a general term which is a subset of artificial intelligence and it basically refers to looking at data, typically unstructured data, and then using that data to come up with a prediction. You know, machine learning is a super controversial uh topic and it's one that we really focus on quite a bit. But we really focus on analytics and using advanced analytics, um, all sorts of different analytics techniques, by the way, including machine learning. And we look at ways in which we can improve the predictive power of our scores, but also importantly, include more people. So that's why we were pioneers in including things like rental data, which is not a loan obligation, but it's a really good predictor of what you're going to do. So we believe algorithms are about making smart choices about how you use the data to include more people, but also, uh, very importantly, understand how that data will actually predict effectively the consumer's uh, behavior. 
as you're trying to include this this rental data, it can be complicated because some landlords don't provide data on who's renting from them or paying rent on time consistently, especially when you're talking about some of these more vulnerable groups like recent immigrants or people who are low income. What have you all been doing at Vantage Score to try to obtain access to that types of consumer data for the most vulnerable people who may be paying their rent in cash to a landlord who maybe doesn't have the most incentive to report that? Yeah. Well, the first thing that we did is we were the were the first to incorporate that rental data when it's furnished to the credit bureaus, right? The second key thing that we're doing is looking at what are the other ways in which we could potentially get that data. Many consumers, particularly um, limited income consumers, they um, get paid on payroll cards, um, which is a type of card or debit card. We're looking at how can we access data from those providers um, and incorporate them into our algorithm. We also looking at bank account and debit account um, transactions. And if the consumer will give us permission to access those, um, then we can use those in our algorithms as well. The reality is, is that there are so many different types of data sources today, but there are more data sets that than we have actually time to to look at. Um, and so it's really just about prioritizing those so that we can incorporate those and get the best data sets with the consumer's permission that's going to open up that really true view of, of credit worthiness. That was Silvio Tavares, president and CEO of Vantage Score. All right, that's it for the show. Tell us what you thought. Did you learn anything? Do you still have questions? Any of that? You know how to get a hold of us. 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Or you can email us, makemesmart at marketplace.org. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was mixed by Jake Cherry. The credit series you heard was mixed by Gary O'Keefe. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer of this podcast is Bridget Bonnard. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand, Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital Marketplace's vice president and general manager. Oh, my God, I ran out of music. Is Sorry, Neil. No time. Neil Scarborough. All right, fine. <laughs> We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.